Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Warner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Paul Pisano, a consultant in the transportation's operations sector based out of Arlington, Virginia. Welcome, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Paul, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science? I'm sure. If if you go all the way back, uh, my dad was a research biochemist. I worked at NIH, and I inherited his curiosity of the world around us, uh, and I was particularly drawn to the natural world around me. So my actually, my first passion was, was into birds and birding, and I still carry on that passion now. But I'm also a pragmatist to the core, and so when I was actually thinking about going to college and what I would, wanted to study, I didn't think that there was much of a career opportunity in ornithology, which is what I was, was sort of thinking I should be going into because I love birds so much. But I, I was drawn to the STEM world, and so engineering seemed like a good, a good fit for me, given my, engin- my science and engineering interest. So I went into uh, engineering, and civil engineering in particular seemed to be the most humanistic the, uh, aspect of engineering. So went into civil engineering and then decided to focus specifically on transportation um, because who doesn't like a good road trip? So, you know, that's how I ended up in transportation engineering and got both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in, in civil engineering with a focus on transportation. Sure. Transportation is definitely highly applicable to daily life and everyone can see the impacts of it immediately on a day-to-day basis. Paul, quick question. Do you have a favorite bird that fascinated you when you were first getting into ornithology or at the moment? Um, as Well, I've got a lot of favorites, but I would say probably the Atlantic puffin or puffins in general were, were one of the biggest draws to me. Puffins are pretty cute. What about them do you like the most? And it, just the character. They just look funny with the, with the humongous bill and, and uh, just the overall demeanor that they that they carry. So what opportunities did you pursue while you were pursuing your education that you knew would be beneficial for finding and securing a job in your profession, which you did? So at, while I was at the University of Maryland in the early 80s, I was interested in gaining some, some real-world work experience. And fortunately, the Federal Highway Administration had a cooperative engineering program. So you could work for a semester at the Federal Highway Administration and then go back to school for another semester. And so I went back and forth over the course of my undergraduate years. So it took me six years to get a bachelor's degree instead of maybe four or a little more than that. Um, But I I came out of that with real-world experience at the Federal Highway Administration, and and, uh, that was certainly helped reinforce my interest in being both a a civil servant, but also working in in the area of, of highway engineering. And I ended up going back straight into my graduate program because I, I knew I wanted to, to pursue a an advanced degree because I knew that would give me a competitive edge. And purely by coincidence, one of the guys that I worked with while I was a co-op student at Federal Highway was in one of my classes. 
and told me of a job opening at Federal Highway in the, in the research office. And so I applied for that. It, w- it was a perfect segue then from the research I was doing in my graduate program right into research at the Federal Highway Administration. And then you know, 34 years later, <laughs> I, was, I was leaving the agency, but it was the start of a, of a really great career. So that job you got wouldn't have been possible without your master's degree? It would not have been possible without either the co-op experience or the master's degree. Okay. They, I really both of them were critical to to securing that position because they they knew me and also they they saw that I had the research experience uh, that I gained from the graduate program that I would not have had just out of getting my bachelor's. And what does it mean to be positioned as a civil servant versus in the private sector? How do you see yourself in that perspective? Right. So again, this is also relates back to um, just the experience I saw in at home with my dad's career at NIH as a civil servant and, and the interest in wanting to do what's right for the community, for society. And so that, to me, was uh, very much at the core of where I wanted to go with, uh, with my career was something that was going to be of value to to the country. And so that not to say that you can't do that in, in the private sector, but there's a much different motivation within the private sector that, that you don't get when you work for the government. So how did you go about becoming a consultant? You know, you worked for the Federal Highway Administration for quite a long time. And then um, what got you interested in, in doing consulting? So I hit my minimum retirement age at 56. So that was, again, 34 years uh, working at Federal Highway. Uh, it was a combination of not feeling quite as influential in my position at Federal Highway and wanting to continue to pursue the work I was doing in road weather in particular, um, but also wanting to use this as an opportunity to do something different. So um, as an aside, I am also doing consulting work for the American Bird Conservancy, which ties back to my interest in birds. So, th- so <laughs> nice. being, being a consultant and being uh, out of the, the full-time workforce gives me that opportunity to explore and pursue a lot of different things that I wanted to, to try out. So you can have a diverse set of passions that you can pursue now that you're not full-time at the Federal Highway Administration. Correct. So you were there a long time, 30 years. Um, you were in leadership by the end of your tenure, and I'm guessing started out lower in the hierarchy. Could you take us through a typical day on the job now as a consultant? And maybe if it's uh, possible, give us an idea of who you consult for in your capacity on the road weather side. So I am... Very fortunate in that uh, because I have been retiring and have a pension that uh, I can take on work that is most interesting to me, but it may not be the most profitable in terms of bringing in money. So I, I spend a lot of my time just reading and doing work that actually does not pay, but it, but is really interesting work in the field. In fact, one of the the activities that I'm involved in right now that, that takes the most time is as chair of the Transportation Research Board's Road Weather Committee. So the Transportation Research Board, as part of the National Academies, oversees a huge array of research and applied programs to further the transportation world overall. And their huge committee structure includes work in road weather, and and I am able to work there. But then I also work. I'm a subcontractor to Virginia Tech, who has, and we have a contract with also another part of the Transportation Research Board called the 
National Cooperative Highway Research Program. And so they, I'm doing a project there. Actually, in an area, uh, a different area that I than the road weather side, it's, it's um, on work zone management and connected and automated vehicles. So it, a typical day is to uh, work on that project, but then also explore road weather work that I'm doing for TRB. I also um, am on a committee to put together a series of virtual workshops on supply chain resilience, also through the National Academies doesn't pay, but it's a really interesting activity to, to explore how things like extreme weather and pandemics affect the supply chain. So since you worked for the Federal Highway Administration for so long, and for our listeners who are maybe students who are going to be graduating or early career professionals, what types of things did you do at the Federal Highway Administration? What was that job like? So I did 10 years in the um, at the research center, the Turner Fairbank Highway Research Center, which is Federal Highway's major research body uh, in McLean, Virginia. And I was I started out doing work in traffic safety research. And again, purely by chance, my boss came in one day and said, "Oh, you're also going to do work in rural intelligent transportation systems." And this was, mm. yeah, what is that? <laughs> so in, in, in the mid-80s, there was a huge amount of, of money put towards what did we call intelligent transportation systems. It's all about applying technology to the highway environment to improve transportation system operations. Uh, it was a huge growth area, and uh, rural applications was one area of interest. It was not the most glamorous part of, of ITS. Actually, most of the work was taking place in urban areas. And so now we see traffic cameras and variable message signs and all the things you see on the roadway that are technology-based, all very new 20, 30 years ago. And uh, I got put into that program, not by choice, uh, and but I figured, okay, let me, let me see what, what's happening here. And in talking to people in, in rural states, and understanding where their challenges lie and where there might be opportunities to apply technology, weather kept coming up. And so I needed to get smart on weather at that point. And I was also very fortunate that we had a leader uh, in the name of Christine Johnson, who was a big risk taker and, and saw a, this as, a, as, an, as an area of need. And so I was tapped to, to lead the road weather program. So it did not exist uh, prior to 1999. And at that point, I came in and shaped that program, which I led then for the, um, the rest of my career up through 2019. So for, for present day, does the Federal Highway Administration hire more meteorologists than they used to because of that? Or is it a mix of all different careers? I, I wish. Um, no, in fact, actually, so the one thing about highways is that the Federal Highway Administration does not own and operate any of the nation's roads. Even the interstate highway system is owned, operated, and, and managed by and maintained by state departments of transportation. So they're the agencies that are really having to deal with weather on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there are a few states that have hired meteorologists, and that's something that I wish we, we saw more of that and we encourage it, uh, but it is, it's up to the states to decide if it's worth their while to, to bring them on within their ranks or more likely to hire out as a contractor and consultant to provide road weather services to the state DOTs. So the Federal Highway Administration does not directly operate the roads, but it does valuable research 
on how to improve the roads and stuff like what you talked about with the intelligent technology. My first thought, like you had mentioned, was digital signs that tell you how long a certain stretch of commute will be or give you an alert now, like don't text and drive. Um, And I'm sure there's many other applications as well. Could you tell us about maybe another project you're working on either towards the end of your uh, career at the Federal Highway Administration or maybe a particular initiative that committee you spoke of that you're the chair of, uh, what they might be working on? Right. So the the Road Weather Committee is working on, as, as is Federal Highway, on the connected and automated vehicles and how they would operate under adverse weather conditions. So we hear about self-driving cars, right? And that's a, that's a really big deal. And it's a really exciting area of growth and, and a potential huge change within the highway environment. So you think about these self-driving vehicles and you think about how they're being tested in Arizona and California where it's nice and beautiful weather. Well, what happens when you try to operate that vehicle in Minnesota in the wintertime? It's going to slip and slide all over the place. Exactly. And so that's, that's where there's a lot of work going on is trying to understand how are these vehicles going to work and if they uh, are going to be reaching the limits of their ability to operate, how do you take over the vehicle or what do you, what do you do about that? And then there's a lot of unanswered questions right now in that area. So autonomous vehicles are really the next frontier in transportation operations. Yes, I would say so. And particularly in the area of road weather. I was just uh, listening to the radio the other day and there was a news segment about, um, you know, an elderly person who had, you know, stepped on the gas and drove through a store and they were asking, you know, I wonder if there's going to be a point where we have cars where if they they see you accelerating and you're going to be hitting something, if it could stop the car. I mean, that would be great. I, I mean, I don't know if that's even possible at, at such a high acceleration, but maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is possible. But it also, the other answer to that would be, take the driver out of the loop in the first place so they don't have that experience, right? So, so the, the car operates itself relying on a, a suite of sensors. And so they're building these, these vehicles that use cameras and radar and LIDAR to sense what's around it and know not to accelerate in the first place. Right. Although, and, and one of the things that they talk about for these automated vehicles is, oh, this would be a great opportunity for older drivers and younger drivers and people who aren't able to operate the vehicles uh, they could be the ones who would be most likely to benefit from these these self-driving cars. To which I I bring this up to my mom and I say, Hey, mom, you won't you you don't you know I know you can't drive now because you're too old, but you could use one of these vehicles. And to which my mom says, Not on your life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to get into, I'm never going to get into one of those things. <laughs> so seniors, older folks, just don't trust getting into something that's going to drive itself when they've probably driven in something that didn't even have automatic transmission when they were first learning how to drive. But when you were talking about that, you know, I'm older, but not that old. I would be a little nervous. I mean, I would hope that there would be some type of mechanism where you could, you know, override the automated vehicle if something didn't go right. 
Yeah, they, well, there's there's different levels of sophistication in terms of the the vehicles. Those that have some, and and you can even buy cars today that have some technology on them that like that help you keep track in the lane that you're in, mm-hmm. or the adaptive cruise control, which slows the vehicle down on its own when it, you're approaching a vehicle too closely. Those already exist today. Uh, the question is how far do we go in terms of taking the driver out of the loop and and do you always need to maintain that ability to override the the challenge though is that studies have shown that it it takes too long for a human to realize that there's a problem and take control of the vehicle uh, if they've gotten to the point where they're comfortable with the car just running on its own you know they're going to be right. texting they're going to be reading you know and then all of a sudden there's a ice slick that the car missed, you know, the driver's not going to wake up, you know, or, or, you know, in terms of pay attention, take control of the vehicle in enough time before that car skids off the highway. And there's an interesting legal and ethical dimension as well, where a person can be charged with, I think, manslaughter or something similar if they accidentally hit someone and God forbid, end their life. But if the machine is doing the driving, who can be held accountable legally? Do we have a legal framework? Do you think about or work in that area at all? I don't personally, no. There are, but there are a lot of people who are, because that is a huge area of interest as well and huge concern. So you do lots of different things um, with your consulting. And what do you like most about your job, whether it be the consulting portion or when you worked at the Federal Highway Administration? Well, certainly from the consulting side of it, the, the, the best part of this job is the lack of bureaucracy. In spite of how much I enjoyed being a civil servant, and, and, and although I don't think this is unique to the public sector anyway, uh, that I set my own time and that the time that I spend working, I'm working on things that I want to work on and that are going to be useful, not having to fill out another form and, and wait for somebody to finally sign off on being able to publish this document. <laughs> that's one of the major frustrations I had at Federal Highway. So th- that's that's only the best part about being a consultant. So certainly the bureaucracy can kind of undermine or slow down the greater good that could come from working for a civil agency. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in that you're working for a place that is not looking to make a profit. It's looking to help the community, help the nation. But at the same time, you've got these bureaucratic roadblocks sometimes that are getting in your way. That aside, are there any other challenges that you have faced in your career or challenges that you're facing in your field or that your field at large is facing that you would like to speak to? Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly the, the biggest challenge, particularly on the on the road weather side, is funding. Sure. It was something that was, you know, we, we really ramped up in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a strong interest in the program. There was strong interest from our leadership uh, in, in funding this. Congress put in as part of the federal highway bill uh, that was on just specifically for road weather R&D authorized at $5 million a year for the six years of the highway bill. That was from 2000, actually 2006 uh, to, it ended up going through, I think, about 2010. And that was great because there was dedicated funding for road weather research. Once that went away, it became much more difficult to maintain a level of interest 
both within the federal government, but also beyond to, to continue supporting uh, this particular discipline. Do you know of any pending legislation at the state or federal level that's looking to bring more funding to road weather? The, well, there's certainly the next round of the highway bill is being discussed as we speak, and um, I, I don't know that there is anything specific to road weather in there. I, I wish there was. Uh, it's something actually that I do hope to explore further uh, in my um, position at, at this time. With, and that, that's what, something that I'm trying to also generate more interest in in my role at the Transportation Research Board on this road weather committee is to, to uh, repeat the successes we had 20 years ago. Uh, to get the, the the funding to support the work that needs to be done. Do you think there's a grassroots element of speaking to your local community and encouraging folks to reach out to their legislators and ask them to ask for funds for road weather because it is such a core public safety concern, something that can save lives in a very obvious and apparent fashion? I certainly think that that would help. It, it absolutely would would be useful to have voices across the country expressing an interest and, and a need. The other side of it, though, I think, is the private sector support would also, I think, go far in recognizing that there is a an opportunity here to to address the the safety problems that we have because we still have very large safety problems uh, on the highway under adverse weather conditions. So, speaking of traffic safety. Could you tell us a little bit about an aspect of traffic safety that most road users take for granted but is integral to transportation? Certainly. Did you know that uh, severe winter storms increase your risk of being in a crash by as much as 25 times? That's a much higher risk, increased risk compared to things like speeding and drunk driving. The risk isn't even that high. That is why I do not drive in the snow. (laughs) I think it's interesting because there's people certainly that say, oh, I can drive fine when I've had a few drinks, or oh, I'm very good about driving in the snow. People have this self-perception that they are the exception to the rule. Is that something you've had to try to find ways to use research and data to prove that opinion otherwise? Absolutely. The especially when as you know now that you have SUVs all over the place, right? Oh, I've got an SUV. I can I can drive on on ice. You know that's and that's why we in the road weather world called medians SUV parking lots during the snow <laughs> because that's where they often end up. And so, uh, just trying to get people to realize that they need to slow down and and uh, and drive more carefully under these these severe conditions is a huge part of what we've been working on. I am a product of that. I had a uh, Subaru with four-wheel drive, and I was driving that when I was in college and was not going slow enough and went right off the road down the embankment. Oh, no, Kelly. (laughs) Yeah. Thank goodness I was fine. But I'll tell you, it it really was a wake-up call that you have to be super careful. Did the car survive? Yes. I just had to have it towed because I couldn't couldn't drive it out of the ditch. (laughs) I'm glad that was a... A good wake-up call, but something that didn't have any injuries for you or maybe even the car too much. And in the interest of full disclosure, I had that same experience. (laughs) 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 Learning from experience and teaching from experience is certainly the way to go. For our student listeners and or job seekers, what type of positions are available or would you recommend to, to students or to early career professionals in the field of of road weather and how's the future job outlook? You've talked a little bit about this, but is there anything more you can say? 
I just yet repeat what I said earlier. I think the uh, there is a um, small opportunity within the the state government to get a job in the field of road weather and, and meteorology. I think the bigger opportunities are going to be in the private sector. Uh, the, you know, there's almost every state has contracts for road weather services to, to provide better decision support about the road conditions during adverse weather. And so there's a need within the private sector to provide services like that. So I think that's where there's going to be uh, opportunity. Um, but I also think, as we spoke earlier with regards to the self-driving cars, there are big shifts with going on within the transportation world, not only that moving to these these automated vehicles, but also to the uh, mobility as a service and thinking about how people can get around by things like these um, hailing services like Uber and, and Lyft and such, uh, but also combining that with all of the the bike sharing uh, abilities and such. And so there's, there's a way of trying to get people from A to B that goes beyond just getting in your car. And I think that and there's always going to be a weather layer to all of that. And so I think there's beyond just the, with the services that the private sector provides state DOTs, I think there's going to be a need within the automobile uh, manufacturing community and the broader transportation services for somebody who knows something about the weather. For some driving conditions, there's um, catchphrases like turn around, don't drown for driving through a flood zone. Is there a catchphrase or a reminder for uh, winter weather driving that you know of? Uh, there's been a couple of campaigns. Nothing comes off the top of my head. Um, I, I know that there are out there, but nothing uh, comes to my mind immediately. Stay in the driveway. Don't end up on the median. <laughs> um, if you see snow, don't go. <laughs> that's a good one. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's what it is. Ice and snow, take it slow. Ice ah. and snow, take it slow. That's an actual campaign that's been it run is. in the past. Great. Good to know. Paul, you were part of the 2003 AMS Policy Colloquium. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? That was a, a fantastic experience for me because it really exposed me to so much of, of the fantastic work going on within the uh, meteorological community. And and Bill Hook uh, runs an amazing program there. And uh, I did get uh, dubbed the road weather guy there. And, and I think I, I kind of irritated some of the other colloquium participants because every time we'd ever go visit somebody, I would say, uh, what about road weather? And I think they got tired of that, but it was, <laughs> but it really was a fantastic opportunity. And again, it, it exposed me to it's great people. Uh, and I still uh, run into and, and, and I'm friends with people who are in that colloquium with me, uh, as well as the, the programs that Bill brought us to. So what exactly do you do throughout the time? Oh, so we, we, uh, it's just a two week program, but we went to the hill and we got a, a deep dive into, uh, how the, how bills are created and, and passed and, and such within that process. Uh, we would visit, uh, with, we, we have guest speakers coming in to talk to us about, um, research that's going on in different areas. Uh, it was just a, a really great broad exposure to to policy and how policy was is created and how that influences our day-to-day jobs. And so did you meet uh, congressional aides or legislators? We did meet a senator and some of their aides and uh, some of the the people it was more the people behind the scenes that you don't usually see. Sure. Uh, and we got we got to to hear their work and and how critical it is to uh, passing legislation. 
So you'd encourage everyone, especially those interested in road weather, to join the next policy colloquium when we can have it either in a virtual or a in-person setting. Without a doubt. So, uh, Paul, we're just so grateful that you've um, told us everything about road weather, how that was kind of a serendipitous switch, and how you, you learned about atmospheric science vis-a-vis your interest in civil engineering. However, before you go, we always like to ask our guests one last fun question at the end of our show. I have one for you. So you spent 30 years, I believe you were in Washington, D.C. or close to it, working for the Federal Highway Administration. Do you have a favorite monument to visit in D.C. or another place that's particularly meaningful to you in the city that you'd like to share? So my favorite place to go in the district is uh, is a national park, but maybe not a monument, and that's the Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens. It's, it's a fantastic location along the Anacostia River, and it just, again, particularly from the birding side of it, is just a wonderful place to wander and realize, imagine you're anywhere but within a city, and yet you are right in, in the heart of the District of Columbia. Oh, that's cool. So a place to get away. Yeah, I'm happy to hear about something that I haven't heard of before. What was it called again? The Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens, nice. National Park Service-owned property. It actually started as a uh, gardens for water lilies and such that they were that they were growing for other departments, uh, and then now it's just become a national park. Sounds like a beautiful place. So, what sort of birds would you find at the aquatic gardens? There's a great variety of birds because it's right on the river. You get a lot of water birds and herons and egrets and ducks and and such, but also uh, things like bitterns uh, can show up there and uh, I've seen finches and blackbirds and and warblers and literally everything up there at that park. Definitely a place I'm going to put on my list the next time I'm in DC. I recommend it. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Paul, and sharing your work experiences with us. It was really my pleasure. That's our show for today. Thank you so much. Everyone, please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest. Music